focus, as I see it in the industry, is shifted from sometimes making the models into make them uh, work well in the real world and be able to be flexible enough and adapt changes. So that's, I guess I can say that many times maintaining the model and make it good and reliable out there is sometimes much harder than actually developing it. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Nimrod is a senior computer vision algorithms developer at Nanit and the father of two children. Nanit develops smart baby monitoring systems, and it's a product that I happen to use every day. So I am extra excited to talk to him. So Nimrod, I'm, I'm super excited to talk to you about the article you wrote on ML in production, but I, I'd say I'm especially excited to talk to you because you make maybe the the app that I use the most these days, the Nanit app. So my my daughter actually turned one today and we've been using it for the last year. And basically every morning, um, my mother-in-law and my my wife kind of discussed the stats from the previous night's uh, sleep. So I really, really love your app. I can, I can say that honestly. And I, I was proud to discover that you were customers of weights and biases. But I was wondering if you could start by maybe talking about what your app does and what the history of the company is and, and how you think about that? Yeah, sure. So first, you know, happy to be here. And the whole uh, company started by an idea of uh, one of the staff, one of the founders that actually wanted to monitor his son's sleep, you know, during during the night since he came from the whole world of, of processes and monitoring uh, using cameras and he wanted to you know, take that to his son. And it started as a project when he was at Cornell University and everything just rolled uh, from there, actually. And since we have a camera and uh, he's from the field of computer vision, we started, the camera started doing a smart baby monitor using uh, computer vision algorithms that can attract, as you know, sleep, also uh, the breathing motion and then let you celebrate them. Uh, milestones of your baby, for example, you know, sleeping, uh, falling asleep uh, first time on his own and sleeping through the night without any visits from the parents, which is uh, great for us, the parents, of course, and they're giving you a specific uh, sleep tips, you know, in order to improve your baby's uh, sleep. And actually the key, or can I say what guides the companies is uh, what value can we extract from visual data that the camera collects? So it's kind of obvious on, on sleep and, of course, on, on, on breeding for young babies. But also, uh, this is the guidelines that guide us for the next products and features, uh, how to give value in terms of, of wealth and wellness to, to our customers. And, and it's also really unique since uh, also this product has two hats, basically. We can have the hat of, of a consumer electronic product as you use it. And and it's also a for research tool, which started to, to being used uh, more and more recently. Researchers are doing the home sleep research. So it's pretty cool that you know science and, and technology are working together and we get to deliver a really uh, interesting product. That is really cool. And I, I think, you know, folks who are listening to this who who haven't had children yet might not realize how essential sleep is for your sanity as a parent and how how also how how important sleep is for the sanity of your child so oh, for everyone, i definitely yeah. thought much more about sleep in the last year than than i ever thought about before one of the key advantages of the, of the product is as you know as parents you get up at night for your children and you're drowsy and you don't remember exactly did i get up like two times it was at 3 a.m maybe it was uh, five i don't remember 
And Nanny just collects you the data and serves to you clearly to make in order to make you know useful summary of this of, of the night and, and you can also you know make data-driven decisions if you want and not by beliefs because you know this whole field of babies sleep is, is full with beliefs. Some say that this method works better, some say the other. And here you get you know the facts, you get the data. The baby slept well, the, the baby slept better, the baby didn't sleep that good uh, this night. And we also see that, you know, since parents are more focusing on, on the baby's sleep, also babies with uh, nanny sleeps better. They sleep longer, the, their sleep quality is better because everyone is, is, you know, is, is in this process and they're focusing. So, so it's pretty amazing, I must say. That's really amazing. How do, how do you know that babies with, that use nanny sleep better? Uh, so we have a large user base and uh, we often send service to, to our customers. And they actually respond to that. And, and we see in, in the statistics and in what they're telling that just babies with nanny can sleep better because you're more aware of that. And, and, and they actually, the tips are useful. So in, in, you're in a mindset of, of improving and how sleep is important. So I, I guess wow, that's, that's it. That's, that's very cool. So uh, can you break down what the, you know, since we're, this is you know, supposed to be an ML podcast, although parenting has been coming up an awful lot lately with people <laughs> we've been talking to. Can you kind of break down the, the pieces that are kind of ML problems or computer vision problems that you need to solve to make uh, the app work? Yeah, so we, we use all sorts of uh, computer vision algorithms in order to get a good understanding of the scene. I mean, in order to, to know, for example, when the baby is falling asleep on his own and whether a parent comes to visit or not, all those, all those are actually computer vision problems that we need to solve. And we actually serve multiple models during the night in order to get the whole uh, scene understanding. And, and on top of that, we take those outputs uh, from the models and, and serve you the data much more uh, clearly. So there's been a lot going on uh, during the night. And so do you run the models on the phone or do you run it, them in the cloud? How, how does that work? Mostly uh, mostly in the cloud. We do have some algorithms that running on the camera as well, but mostly uh, on the cloud. And and can you give me some sense of like what the scale of this is? Like how much data your models are handling or like how, how many streams of video you get in a typical night? Yeah, so for let's take a, a, a short example. We have more than a hundred thousand users, and you know we have a full night, uh, which basically means uh, that if we serve, for example, every ten minutes or so, we get into a few tens of millions of uh, calls for models per night. So so it's it's a nice scale. I mean, we get to serve over uh, you know tens of millions of, of requests per night to all our users and these are pretty sensitive models and and I, I've noticed that you've never gone down I mean at, at least in my experience like it seems like you do a really good job with reliability and I would think you'd have maybe a higher reliability bar than than some other applications of folks we've talked to yeah well you're right since babies are actually the most important things to the parents uh, we try to be reliable as possible in terms of robustness of the models and accuracy of the models and also in terms of uh, runtime and to reduce downtime as much as possible because again as everyone expects our algorithms to work all the time and give them the data especially uh, when it comes to babies so we're putting a lot of effort, a lot of effort on that as well and I guess the sleeping model is important, but the one that seems must be kind of uh, anxiety producing. I mean, just talking about it, it's giving me anxiety, but the, the breathing motion monitoring, you know, is that also a, an ML model that, that checks for that? 
Well, uh, we use multiple models there. So uh, there are some models that are more of uh, machine learning, deep learning based, and there are some computer vision classics models as well. There are all sorts of uh, models. And and why do you use multiple models for a single application? Well, we have many many tasks that we need to solve in order to 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 get this product to be reliable and robust enough, especially when we're talking about breathing motion. So I guess when you look at like handling all like you know millions of requests per night, I guess like what are some things that you do to make sure that this is reliable and make sure that your compute spend is sane? Like how do you how do you think about like model architecture and and how do you deploy your models and you know what frameworks and tools do you use? So it's pretty interesting. At our team, we actually responsible for the whole flow end to end. I mean, from developing and defining the task, all the research, selecting the model architecture, even conducting a proof of concept. Uh, many times we'll probably elaborate on that later because I think it's really important uh, nowadays for practitioners uh, in the industry. Also, uh, the whole training process, of course, where you come in the picture with uh, some great tools helping us find which which models and experiments are better. Evaluating, which is actually pretty interesting because we try to conduct an evaluation metrics that also holds the product objectives inside as well. Because, uh, you know, we're not building models uh, in vacuum. We're all tied up to a product and a value to give to our customers. So it's not always that straightforward. And until deploying uh, to production, uh, including building monitoring systems, which should be our eyes out there eventually, and runtime optimization, as you said, not to spend so much on compute. So it's it's pretty complicated flow. But over the last uh, few projects, we actually formed uh, a nice formula for it, uh, which I, I, I posted uh, on, on, on Medium blog post as, as a guidelines, which proven to be successful in the in the fast few times. And and it's actually in, in the trend, at least as I see it now. I mean, every time I read on Twitter or on LinkedIn or, or or whatever about people that are talking how to to maintain and and deploy and make good models in production because there there isn't any silver bullet there so you know and there are companies that are always trying to to solve the whole pipeline some some part of it so it's really interesting I mean I mean the focus as I see it in the industry is shifted from sometimes making the models into make them work well in the real world and be able to be flexible enough and adapt changes. So that's, I guess I can say that many times maintaining the model and make it good and reliable out there is sometimes much harder than actually developing it, which is kind of amazing uh, if you think of it. I guess that wasn't exactly the focus like a few years ago, but kind of like get there. Tell me some stories about, you know, some stuff that you've run into and tell me like, if you could tell me like specifically, like maybe pick a model and what it does and kind of like, what were the issues that you ran into in the process of, of getting it deployed and running? Yeah, we can take object detectors as example. We use them, of course, in our product and... And in this case, an object detector would be like a baby detector or like a parent detector. Is that... Uh, for is example, that yeah, it can be... Uh... Uh, let's say, for example, yeah, baby, a baby detector, and so when so when you take a baby detector and 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 you actually want to uh, to start building it, you must be aware of, for example, the evaluation on how you're going to be performed. I mean, that's that's a pretty that's a common pitfall. I mean, I mean, people can choosing the right evaluation metrics is is pretty tricky, and I know that I can say for myself, I, I have to recover from some bad decisions, uh, you know, and and. And it's actually how you look on the model and, and 
if you could break down that down, I mean, so like, what would be a bad evaluation metric from a baby detector? Because I can think like probably some people are are listening to this and thinking like, okay, like accuracy sounds like a pretty good metric, but like, what 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 would be kind of a metric that might lead you astray with with a baby detection model? So so okay, let's uh, you know let's take just a, a toy example about it, and and let's say we have a baby detector, and uh, you know its its accuracy is uh, let's say it's pretty good, but you know we care more about uh, eventually in the product we care more about the false positive than the false negative, for example. Okay, and 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 how you look on on the evaluation metrics can really affect that. So if if I'll give a little bit more weight to the to the false positive, like we saw, for example, a decrease in in accuracy on some metrics that actually average everything. And and once, but but eventually this is the right metric, and we get a much higher performance. Or also the other way around. I mean, we have a model that has very high accuracy, but eventually since uh, the product was aimed to try to decrease false positives, the product uh, metric was uh, way lower. So it's really how you look at it. And that's the trick part, I think. So I guess what, what metric then could you move to and then what would you do to improve that metric? So what, once, once, you, once you define the metric, you can, also, you can always try and see where, where are the weak cases and, and maybe how you can strengthen them, even if it's more data or even if it's a special kind of annotation, alpha augmentations. So, but again, those things can be you know, under the radar if you don't uh, give them enough weight. I mean, that's, that's a common failure case that actually happened in the past. Wait, so can you explain one more time like what happens there in this in this failure case? Yeah. So let's say, for example, we took an accuracy overall uh, measure for a baby detector, but we misdetect, sorry, the baby when it wasn't there, but we had the high recall and uh, which compensate that. And eventually we got to very high accuracy. But for example, for other product purposes, uh, the precision needed to be higher in order to give enough value to, to the product. And so it's actually another way of looking at it is looking over the precision as, as you know, the biggest parameter for us. And so once we changed to look at that, we, we could clearly see the problem and fix that. And how do you fix a problem like that? So collecting the data, I assume, in a much dedicated way uh, to your problem, maybe see whether you're actually collecting the right data and not just, you know, maybe random sample the data at some point, but actually direct yourself to to the places that the model will look uh, when it's in production. And so you want to try to imitate that and collect data from those parts in order to make your model trained on what it's actually going to see and not on what's easy to collect. That's one of probably the best solutions. So collecting data of the cases that where you think your model is struggling and adding that as opposed to random sampling. For example, or maybe collecting uh, the right data to, to your problem. I mean, I mean, you can collect data in many ways and collecting the data that suits uh, your problem is 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 the first thing actually i think you need to do and put a lot of thought about it it's actually my first bullet on the guidelines start by defining what what's the right data for you okay? don't just collect data and start working on a model because you know, you're going to waste time and do you have ways of explaining to like you know a business person how to justify the cost of of data collection in terms of some metric that they care about like, is that an important thing to you? We, we try, uh, Nelly, to keep uh, a close connection between the product and, and the algorithm performances because, you know, data collection is, is very expensive 
and and our time and and our resources are very expensive. So we try not to make perfect models that will have no effect on the product. So yeah, I guess this this process is pretty easy for us because this is one of the first priorities when we start a project. And are you also in parallel experimenting with different kinds of algorithms or doing hyperparameter searches? Like, is that important to you at all, or is it really just the yeah. data collection? No, 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 no. It's it's. I mean. The data collection is good, but we actually we're doing all, all sorts of uh, uh, hyperparameter tuning and choosing models, and we have really organized mythology about what to do first. So, can you tell me your methodology? Well, I mean, not in particular, but we start. I guess a good thing to do is maybe start with trying to get the best model uh, you can get and trying to get an upper bound of performance, and you know, ignore speed, ignore runtime, for example, just to see what you're up and about from the program because. Mm. In, in many cases, uh, you know, the algorithms are working on, on, on public data sets and everyone, you know, detectors work on MS Coco and classification, for example, on, on ImageNet. But mm-hmm. not in all cases, it's a good proxy to your problem. Medical, medical images have their own data sets, mm-hmm. but, but some other parts, the data is not always, you know, natural image style. So uh, you got to try models and many and many hyperparameter tuning it's it's most of the work from the training i mean it's not actual work but uh, it takes a lot of time so and then once the model's deployed do you, do you stop there i would imagine you'd have a pretty you'd have kind of new problems that would come up like do, do you see like data drift as an issue for you or like how do you think about production monitoring so we put a lot of effort in production monitoring. I think it's really important and people sometimes underestimate that because once you deploy a model, I guess nothing, it's not ending. It's actually the beginning because it's much harder and you need to invest uh, real good planning and, and making your monitoring systems to be reliable enough and give you enough confidence because once you deploy the model, that's the whole thing you can see. And the performance on the test that you get before uh, you deploy the model is just uh, a single time. And after that, you'll get many timeframes with performances and you need your monitoring to be reliable enough to spot some shifts and maybe sudden drops and, and, and try to understand what happened. So I guess I can say that we we, we never stop with, with the models. We always look on the monitoring and see uh, where we can see any problems and and what it's connected to. So I think one of the issues is you don't really have ground truth in, in production. So how do you know if there's a problem? Uh, it's true. It's pretty complicated. So we, we always consider a prediction dis- distributions and common stuff like that. We also use other routes as well. For example, uh, user satisfactions and maybe tickets they open. And so we can spot some maybe problems there that we didn't caught up in our monitors. So we try to, to find the source whenever we can. And usually from other parts of the company as well. Interesting. I always wonder like how people do, I mean, I've heard different variants, but do, will you actually like, you know, file a ticket against the ML team if you find like a bad prediction? And then like, what do you do with it, a ticket like that? Well, they don't file it specifically to the ML team, but yeah, there's people file tickets for bad predictions because they're, everything is, is, is actually based on that. So, you know, mm-hmm. you can get wrong statistics and, and, and bad results and, and you're a parent, you want, to, you want to get the data for your child. You pay for this uh, product and, and you want answers. It, it's actually it's actually quite a challenge. I mean, uh, since we have so many users and uh, we need to keep our models in a very high uh, performance level. 
in order not to make so many tickets for us and also make the, the experience for, uh, for our users much, much better. So it's, it's, it's a challenge. And one thing you talked about in your, in your paper or your, your Medium post was kind of preparations before deploying a model to production. Can you talk about like how, how that works? Yeah, I, I, we try uh, to simulate as much as possible how everything will be in production. For example, we, we actually create a production-like environment and, uh, and we also get some of the users to use that. Of course, they are supportive and they are aware that there are going to be changes. And, and we try to monitor everything we can there in order to see that our model formed the way we expect, that we don't see any issues. And that's, of course, in, the mean, in parallel, we also do all those end-to-end tests of all of our algorithms together to see that the new model behaves as it should be and it doesn't arise any special problems from inserting a new block or maybe improving them. That's most of the work that's done there. Got it. Got it. Could you tell me a little bit about how weights and biases fits into your workflow and, and how you use the, the weights and biases tool? Yeah. So with weights and biases, we do all of our, we manage all of our experiments, which is great. We also use your visualization tools in order to compare between experiments. And, and, and since you have everything so shiny and dynamic, we can also uh, try different uh, parameters and see what could have been. And uh, without running the, all the model over and over again, which, uh, which saves time. I'm a pretty huge fan of the reports uh, that you can do because, uh, as I said before, we are really tied up with the product team about the algorithms we do. So it actually makes us uh, a way to show them what we do and, and visualize on real time how each parameter affects the results. And, and we talk about what should be better for the product and the algorithm team together. So yeah, we use quite a lot. And So you actually use reports to share results with the product team? Yeah, we also we also use reports to, to summarize and share with product teams, show them some maybe model weaknesses, whether we want to, to, to deal with this now or maybe deal with this later. And, and mm. for example, how changing parameters can help it also, it's better for mutual work and transparency because sometimes you're trying to be a little bit suspicious from things you don't understand. And once we understand their job and they understand our job, I think the mutual job is much better. We've seen that w- once you talk about it and you explain and they can understand your world and you can understand theirs, we can make decisions which are much more good for, for the company. So it's actually pretty but useful for us. Do you Do you often go down paths where there's like a product feature you might want to make, but you're not sure if you're going to be able to make the machine learning algorithm accurate enough or powerful enough to, to actually make the feature possible. Do you, do you ever get in situations like that? All the time. This, this is one of the main challenges we have when working with this scale and working on such sensitive data. I mean, we get such, so many cool ideas and papers and works, and it's really hard to get them into production. This gap is, is sometimes pretty big. I can, mm-hmm. you know, just name one example that pops into my head. GANs, for sure. example, GANs, for example, are, are pretty, they're amazing example for that. They do marvelous things, but it's really hard to get them into, into production. I mean, they often tend not to converge and they, and it's worked well on this data set, but not in this data set and this data set's worked not good enough. So it, it's, it's a pretty big challenge how to be innovative and giving good and valuable features 
but also reliable and accurate. Uh, which is what what might you do with again? I'm trying to picture that. Like I, I don't I don't want any deep fakes of my baby. <laughs> no, 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 not, not deep fakes. But uh, there are there are many uh, other uses of GAN that we can uh, use, maybe for enhanced images and make your make your nice uh, fun features. You know that you can celebrate like your baby with uh, different background and stuff like that. So the so course all sorts of stuff that GANs can be really useful. But again, there's a big gap between an experiment and, and a paper and actually getting into production. I mean, I, I know that in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of advances, like almost like a tsunami of advances in um, computer vision. Have any of them been relevant to you? Like, do you take recent stuff and, and get them in production? Or is that stuff like too kind of theoretical to really matter for the practical stuff you're doing? We, we always try take state of the art and trying to adapt them to our domain. There are fields which is easier, maybe mainly object detection, we talked about it. So it's since tasks are pretty much solved, let's, let's say, or pretty much com comfortable to, to get them into production. So, so yeah, it's, it's much easier, but there, aren't, but there are other fields that we, we try. I, I honestly say we try all the time. It's sometimes really hard to, to bridge this gap, but it's definitely something that keeps us motivated and try to do it all the time. I mean, if you stay behind in this uh, field, you, you probably won't exist that long. This is what I do. Sure, yeah. Is there any, I guess, any paper or like line of research that you can talk about as being especially relevant to the work you're doing? I can talk about some uh, nice research resources we did lastly, and all of them are actually somehow related. I mean, they're all using the sleep metrics uh, that we have, which have the algorithms at the back. So yeah. during, for example, during the pandemic, during COVID, I actually Nanit kept, helped to keep uh, families together, you know, when, for example, when the grandparents can't see their grandchildren and, and Nanit allows that. And, and we also checked during COVID what are the effects on, on, on babies. And we actually is trying to study the difference between children that their parents were essential and went to work as usual and parents that stayed at home. And we actually saw that the first, at the first few uh, weeks, like from, from the end of March, let's say for the first few weeks, we saw that the, the sleep uh, of the babies actually got worse. Wow. But yeah, but it was actually improved after after a couple of months, we we saw that those uh, the sleep of the of the babies that their parents stayed at home actually got back to normal, which is pretty amazing. It actually means that babies are resilient to the change and they and they adapt back, which is uh, kind of cool. Can I ask you? So this is a uh, I mean this is like I think for a lot of parents the the most drama filled topic is it's kind of sleep training the baby where you leave the baby and let them. Um, cry at various lengths and, and kind of teach them to go to sleep on their own instead of with you holding them. Do, do you have an opinion on that? Well, since I'm not a, split, uh, a sleep expert, I can only say from, <laughs> for, from my experience, it's, it's important to let the baby uh, sleep on their own. I guess not in any cost, but... Do you have any data on that? Is it, is it, I guess you do sort of track when the baby falls asleep on their own. Yeah. Yeah, we do. I'm not sure uh, if I have any relevant research done in this field, but again, you can. This is the beautiful, the beauty of Nanit. I mean, you can actually test your assumptions. I would say because if you believe in that, and you know, and then the objective data tells you that it's right, so so that's that's good. And if not, so you might re want to reconsider. But that's up to you. I mean, you got the data. You can you can decide. Yeah. 
do you publish like aggregate statistics like that on on different things that help babies sleep? We do have uh, researches that we that we publish. I'm not sure regarding those what helps and what doesn't specifically. We did publish research about screen time and how it affects babies and and young children. And it's actually pretty amazing. We found out that, for example, touch screens have a bigger effect on on, on the sleep of babies. As opposed to, for example, television. I mean, television has less effect, which is pretty amazed me. I mean, we, we saw that touchscreen are, are have causing fragmented sleep and less sleep time overall, which is really, I mean, it's really amazing. You, you can you can conduct research and see it quickly because we have large user base and engage users that can uh, allow us and and answer questions. This makes also a good research tool. That really is amazing, yeah. And it seems like, I guess, from your app, I feel like your benchmarks of sleep are, are actually a little less sleep than I, I see in sort of like the parenting books that I read. Do you think because you're actually monitoring it instead of doing getting self-reported data, do you see systematic bias in the, the self-reported sleep data? Like it'll sort of tell me like, you know, how my daughter's doing, like kind of compared to averages. And it's funny because the the app is kind of telling me she's doing pretty good. But then when I compare it to like, you know, books that I'm reading, it seems like she's sleeping a little less than, than average. So maybe, maybe you're just trying to be like, you know, positive and helpful. But I also kind of wonder because, you know, we try to write down every time she wakes up and like, you know, when she goes to sleep and when she gets up. And I always kind of feel like our, our written notes imply a little more sleep than the data actually shows us that that she got. And so I kind of wonder if previous studies relying on kind of parents' memories end up making us think that babies are sleeping more than they're actually sleeping. So what I can say about it, so I guess that's sometimes true. Also, I guess getting data for, for babies for sleep, especially from babies, is pretty expensive. I mean, I'm not sure researchers can do, you know, thousands of, of babies and then record their sleep. Mm-hmm. what Nanit actually can do. So maybe, you know, there's some small portion. This is why you see some big variance between studies about sleep, I mm-hmm. guess. So I guess that would be the reason. I guess, this is, um, my assumption. is there any other takeaways besides besides avoiding touch screens to help a baby sleep? Any any conclusions you've come to with your, your large-scale data collection? Uh, so m- most of actually the significant tips that we see are actually incorporated in the app. So helping the baby fall asleep on his own is, of course, a remarkable sign for that because once he wakes up during the night, he can come back to bed. And so I guess what we see and what is, is you know, we're trying to translate that and, and validate it, of course, and, and send it as, as, as tips if possible. Cool. Well, I guess we always end with two questions and I want to make sure we have a little time for that. So, you know, the the second to last question is, what is one underrated aspect of machine learning that you think people should pay more attention to than they do? I would say building a good process for for, for deploying the models. I mean, making something that, that is, works as a system and it's not occasionally working, not. Because sometimes uh, people tend to, yeah, okay, uh, let's take the data, let's train it. Okay, it's very good on, uh, you know, on, on accuracy. Okay, we can deploy it and then uh, the performance are... are are bad and now the model is in the air and you get it's much harder to fix it so i'd say conducting this this mythology this pipeline of how to work better is is something that people should pay more attention and i think that's what we see at least what i read on twitter and linkedin and stuff like that people are paying more and more attention to that mm-hmm. and i think that's important for the industry and are there tools that you use to to help with that 
in in conduct in building those those pipelines so we use uh, whatever for example managing experiment experiments and you know showing the the report and and see everything really helps us to get understanding on how it's exactly done try and simulate the production like this is what works for us but i know there are several companies and there are several products out there that can do many things and this is why i wrote it as guidelines because probably some of some of the tips there could be useful for many people some of them are not so totally um and then i guess maybe you've answered my last question but i'll i'll ask it anyway so like you know when you look at like machine learning in general and making it work into production what what do you see as the biggest challenge from going from like you know research to deployed model working for for customers so yeah as as i said i think this gap is sometimes is really big is is the fact well maybe the ability to understand which paper is is you know is nice <laughs> But will it hold in production? It's a pretty big uh, problem. It's, you need to foresee it. And we've tried a lot of, you know, cool features that we saw like in conferences uh, and, and, and papers, but it didn't hold on, on our data or maybe they weren't good enough. Uh, so we had to drop them. Uh, well, I really appreciate you being kind of public about your work and willing to do case studies and things like that. I think it really helps a lot of people learn best practices as they try to get models in production. So we'll put some links to some of the work that you've put out, but I would say, please keep doing it if you're open to it. It's, it's super helpful for our community. Yeah, I totally agree. This is how we learned and this is how we can share the knowledge. And I think as much as uh, people will share the knowledge, it will be better and everyone could have uh, great productivity, which I think is important. Totally. Thanks, Nimrod. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Doing these interviews are a lot of fun. And the thing that I really want from these interviews is more people get to listen to them. And the easy way to get more people to listen to them is to give us a review that other people can see. So if you enjoyed this and you want to help us out a little bit, I would absolutely love it if you gave us a review. Thanks.